Good morning. It's good to see you guys. Liz, you don't have to run off the stage. I just want to let you know. So. But hurry up next time a little faster. So, hey, if this is your first time here, I want to welcome you. My name is Ricardo Stewart, one of the pastors here. A little bit about Redemption Church. We are one church. We have multiple congregations, nine total. Most of them are here in the valley. We have one in Flagstaff and then one in Tucson. And we believe all of life is all for Jesus. And so simply put, what we believe is on the cross and through the resurrection, that Jesus wasn't only just saving souls to pluck them out of this world, but he was promising to restore and renew all of creation through his life, his death, and his resurrection. So we seek to make disciples, followers of Jesus, in response to that truth. Um, if you want to know more about who we are, ways you can get involved, the information that you want, best thing that you can do, take the Connect card that's in the seat back in front of you. Uh, take some time to fill out your name, your email address, any questions you may have, um, any prayer requests you may have, and then you can drop those Connect cards in the back by the offering boxes, or you can leave them at the Connect desk on your, your way out. Um, we have a series we've been in for several weeks now called Love Walked Among Us, and we're going to continue in this series this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and turn to Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. We're looking at verses 40 through 56. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and keep your hand raised really high. Um, if you own one but you forgot it, go ahead and raise your hand. We would love to give you a copy. And if you don't own one, um, go ahead and raise your hand, and then keep the copy that we're handing out so that you can have a Bible for yourself as a gift from us to you so that you can grow and understanding and acknowledge of Jesus Christ. So just a quick recap of this series is the whole point we did this series is we wanted to see Jesus' life on display, not just his works or his miracles, primarily the way in which he loves and the way that he approaches people. And so we said as a series, though we're teaching a lot of these stories on Jesus' miracles, that it's less about the miracle and more about the man of Jesus, that it's less about the intellect and it's more about our affections on who Christ is and how we can love like him. And then lastly on that, we want to make sure that when it comes to us knowing Jesus, that we can slow down and see what Jesus is like, particularly what love is like when it's put on display. And so we've seen how Jesus moves to people and how he touches people and his touching and looking leads to compassion in ways that are absolutely amazing. And so today um, we have a story in which it's, there's two different people in this story, or technically there's three. There's this man, Jairus, and his daughter, um, and then there's this woman, which we don't know her name. Uh, that there's parallels here, though there is rich and then there's poor, which we love to be able to see because Jesus is showing that there's a love for both. But primarily, what we'll see is two different things here. One, that when it comes to the love of God and love put on display, is that love is totally okay with being interrupted. Love is totally okay with intrusion. And the second part is desperate. That people who have faith in God are people who have a desperate faith, which is something that we have to have. So we're not so distracted by the things of this world where we find ourselves being des desperate. But the first part, though, is that love, when you love like Christ, you got to be okay with people interrupting and intruding. And that's not easy for us because many of us are like planning, scheduled, organized people. And, um, and people interrupting our plans, whatnot, it absolutely, you know, gets in the way of us being the control freaks that we are. And so we don't usually like that. Um, when my wife and I first got married, um, our families are wildly different, not just black, white, different, like different in every aspect of the way that you could be different. And I'm not saying one family is better than the other. That's not what I'm saying. Um, so <laughs> there, there, there is, there is, so here's how it would go, like in terms of like interruption. If my wife's family is going to come in and visit us, they're going to say something like, hey, we know it's March. We're planning on coming next March, 2020. Um, <laughs> And 
we wanted to know if you guys would be available, if it's okay, if we came, we're going to get our own hotel, you don't have to worry about it. I mean, like, it's just going to be like this overly planned kind of deal. Where my family would be like, hey, um, it's Sunday, we're on our way, right? And, you know, and I'm like, what do you mean on your way? Like, we're in Blythe driving from California on the way to Arizona, we'll see you in a bit, what's for dinner? Like, that's usually it. And it's never like we're going to get our own hotel, like, that's never even been an option. It's like... We're coming. Who's we? Well, it's me, it's my mom, it's my auntie, it's my cousin, it's my nephew, it's my brother, my sister, and, you know, and our house. And, and, like, my wife's like, how come they don't let us know before? I said, Holly, that's three hours. You got time. <laughs> there, like, there's, <laughs> right? And that's a true story, by the way. Those are not like, oh, that's a fabricated story. That's a true story. Now, how do I try to convince my wife that it's going to be okay and try to tell my mom that my wife doesn't always like that? You, as a, as a son, would you get in the middle between your wife and your mom, right? You're, at that time, you're like, come, Lord Jesus, soon, right? <laughs> that doesn't have a whole lot to do with what we're going to talk about today. But I do, I do think that was, it was worth me sharing that to you guys, just to give you some insight into my life. So... All right, and so we're going to look at this interruption and primarily the desperation. So let's pray and ask God to bless our time this morning. Jesus, we thank you that we have an opportunity to be with you and to be your children, to gather, God, which is a gift, to be able to gather in your name and to be able to hear from you and to see the ways in which you move. Um, God, we ask, Lord, in this moment that you would uh, illuminate the scriptures in ways that we would see Jesus. And not just see Jesus, we would, we would, you would, by your spirit, increase in us a desire of faith in your son Jesus, that we may know him, and that we may follow him, and that we may love him. God, that we may look like him and desire to be like him. All in the strength and the grace in which you give us, Father. We praise you. We thank you. We ask for you to have all the glory in all that we do, say, and think. In Christ's name, amen. So when I, when I became a Christian, uh, I was in college, and... Um, I was at this, there's a bunch of things going, going on in my life right now, at that time, but I wasn't looking for God, right? And so the way I became a Christian, just to be very clear, I became a Christian because God saved me. So all you very theological reform people are like, check, all right? And so the way the, the, way the narrative went of how God saved me is I was, I was in the apartment complex um, hanging out with a, a friend of mine, and I get a phone call, and it's a 213 area code, but it's not a name that I know. So I know it's somebody from L.A., but I don't know who it is. And they answer it, and this is lady, she's in my mom's prayer group, um, back in California, my mom's like in the prayer group, praying for um, things. And, that, and this lady said, you know what, I got your number from your mom, because the Lord wanted me to call you. And I'm upset, because I'm like, why is my mom giving my number to some random lady? Um, but like, what am I going to do, like tell my mom no? I haven't done that my whole life, so why not start now? <laughs> and so um, now you have, you have this, you, like this lady who begins to, this is where you guys get a little awkward sometimes, it's just, she says, I have a word from the Lord for you. Now, I grew up in a church that was rather charismatic that people always had a word of the Lord for people. Uh, whether it was always from the Lord or not is debatable. <laughs> um, this lady says this, and I'm like, all right, go for it. And then she starts just speaking prophetically in my life in, in ways that um, was insane. And, 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 and I'm not going to go into the full details of that right now, but it was just like so crystal clear. And this very unpleasant interruption from this lady and ultimately by God was the very moment in which my eyes were able to be opened up and to see the saving ways of Jesus Christ. And listen, she didn't come to me and say, God has a wonderful plan for your life or anything like that. There was no curriculum. There was no special thing. It was her being able to speak on behalf of God and basically God wanting to show up and show out in my life. And I'm thankful for that interruption, right? 
That interruption in itself was enough to get me to know Jesus, but it wasn't enough for me to actually grow in Christ. Hear me on this. Um, I think we could be guilty of this too. There is something about the nature of having a large gathering and, I don't know, some of the cool things that the Lord does for us as a church that it's comfortable enough to actually say you believe in Jesus and truly believe in Jesus. No one's questioning that. Um, But then not be discipled and not actually walk with Christ, not have any desire for holiness and the desire to look like him and follow him and have that desperation. You actually need people in your life. And so not only do you need God to interrupt, you need to be people who are loving enough to let you interrupt their lives that you may be able to follow them as they follow Jesus. So for me, I graduated from college and I I, I moved to the west side. I moved to Peoria, which was a time of purgatory for me. Um, And and while I was there, God bless everybody who's from there. Um, (laughs) And got a big truck with Applebee's every weekend. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) And... uh, (laughs) And, and I was living out in Peoria and working at this school, and I needed to be discipled because I had the same group of friends from college who I loved to this day, but none of them were pointing me towards Jesus. That's for darn sure, right? And my life hadn't really changed. I remember the day after I had become a Christian, I was sitting down at this, this bar, and I'm drinking with my friend, and, and we're just, we're drinking, we're drinking, I mean, we're drinking. And, um, and he goes, he asked me a question. I said, my life's changing, man. I got Jesus in my life, man. And, I, and like, man, it's about to, it's, it's like, basically, it's about to go down, right? And I, by this time, I was filled with the Spirit, wrong Spirit, but filled with the Spirit. And, and he, he looked at me and basically was like, dude, nothing's different about your life, but you just talk about Jesus now. Um, and so I prayed, Lord, I need somebody. I don't think I said disciple me, but someone just to show me how to read my Bible and just to follow Jesus. I never had that. And the Lord brought about this guy. We've heard him share before. His name's Eli. And Eli was teaching at the school that I was teaching at. And he was just kind of weird. To be honest with you, he was really weird. Uh, but, but I knew something was quote-unquote different about him. And so I just jumped into this dude's life. I was like, hey, man, you seem like a Christian. Can, I, can, I, can, I, like, can you show me how to be a Christian? Like, I didn't even have the right language that I have now. Like, you, can you show me how to be a Christian? He's like, sure, what are you doing tomorrow night? As if, like, I thought, like, okay, I'm going to go up for a night, and there's going to be one night of him showing me how to be a Christian. All we did was go over to his house and eat dinner with him and his wife and his little girl. Hey, what are you doing tomorrow night? I'm not doing anything. You want to come over for dinner? Absolutely. When you start realizing that these dinners were free, too, I'm free every night. You know what I mean? Like, and so, interrupt him in his life. I mean, legitimately, it was weeks in that I'm sitting down in his household, and it's time to put his daughter to bed, and I get to go in the room with him, sing songs, read as he reads and sings and dances to his daughter, and show me about marriage, and then spring break happened, and he goes, hey, what are you doing for spring break? I'm like, I'm not doing anything for spring break. He goes, oh, good. You should come painting with me because I paint um, as a side job. And I'm like, I've never painted before. And he goes, oh, don't worry about it. I'll teach you. So here we are painting these houses for hours and hours and hours. And all he would do is just tell me about how he loves his wife. He'd tell me how, how he prayed. He would tell me about just how he was raised and his life and confession and so forth. And when it came to confession, my man was so wide open about who he was that it wasn't even a flinch that it was like, oh, I need to hide these things. It was just like he was so committed to the ways of Jesus. Now, it's no coincidence that one of my son is named Eli, um, after this particular person, who, by the way, changed his name to Elliot, um, which I'm like, I'm not changing my son's name. Um, he's since moved back to Tucson where he played football at U of A and goes to Redemption Tucson. And so I don't talk to him anymore. And so there's, there's a, uh, there, that's a, that, that's a, that part's a lie, okay? Just know, lied on stage. So you have, well, the point that I'm saying there is the way what he did for me was not just accepted, like, he let me interrupt in ways that was transformational for my life. 
So much of us, when we relate to God and others, it's, all, it's usually transactional. What can I give you and what can I get from you and that's it. When it comes to the love of Christ, the love of the gospel, it's always transformational. It's messy, and I know we use that word a lot in Christianity. It's messy, but it really is messy. It's not convenient. It's the most inefficient way to do things, um, and yet it's the ways of Jesus. And what we'll see here in this particular story is that there's two people who interrupt Jesus. And we see that in love on Christ is that he's totally okay with being interrupted. And on the flip side, what we see from these, these people is they are desperate for him. And there's something which we can learn about desperation and being desperate for Jesus and throwing ourselves at the feet of Jesus if we're able to slow down and look at this story. Uh, so with me, chapter 8, verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, and for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. Falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had only an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So here's the context here. Jesus is coming back to the place where he had already healed a bunch of people. He'd done some miracles. And it says when he came back, they were waiting for him. The crowd wasn't waiting for him because, you know, because they just wanted to follow Jesus. The crowd was waiting for him because Jesus had done some really spectacular things. And they wanted to see if Jesus was going to do some more spectacular things. And so there's a crowd there. In the midst of the crowd, there's this man named Jairus. Now, I want to note something. Jairus himself, he's the ruler of the synagogue. Up until this point, all the stories that we've said about people that were rulers of the synagogues or Pharisees or anything like that, it has not gone well for them. For the first time now, Luke brings up somebody who's a Jewish man, who's a ruler of the synagogue, that it's, that it's going to go well. And so this man is in the middle of the crowd. He sees Jesus, and it says that he pushes his way through the crowd, and he throws himself at the feet of Jesus. Big deal? Huge deal. We presume upon Jesus, of course we would throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus. Not the ruler of the synagogue. We got to understand his story. The fact that he's a ruler of the synagogue means he was in charge. Like he was of high standing in the religious community and the greater community because in Jewish culture, the religious community was the community. So he was, he was that guy. The ruler of the synagogue, he would be the one who would decide on who's preaching or not for that, that week. So he looked at and evaluated guys. Like, no, everybody's following this preach when he preaches. This guy's pretty good. We're going to have him preach. They, he would be the one that said which scriptures are going to be going to be read that day and also what songs and so forth they were going to sing. Like he was essentially um, in his particular time like the lead pastor of a church worthy of praise and honor and care and appreciation and love and babysitting and everything else. Right. And so that was that was his role. First century different than our day. <laughs> so so he's a man of high standing. Why does that matter? Because so far. The stories we've been seeing is, is Jesus' love in a lot of ways, especially those who weren't in high standing. We have the widow who doesn't have a man in terms of her husband is gone. And at the point at the time that we started the story, her son was gone. A man who was blind, a woman who's a woman of the city who's weeping at Jesus' feet, a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. Story after story where we don't see this particular part. And why this is important, not only for the scripture, but for us is we have a tendency to oscillate between, isolate between, oscillate between two different sides. Either we find ourselves like, like, Thirsty for power, thirsty for influence, thirsty to be somebody in the middle of the center of attention, and so we find ourselves desiring to be a person of prestige or power, or we go, there's a disdain for that, and we, we find ourselves only wanting to care for the lowly, the marginalized, the unnoticed, the least, the last, the lost, the left out, all of that, and almost to the point that if you're going to be a lover of Jesus, you love this particular group, because Jesus clearly couldn't love rich people. And yet, when we begin to see Jesus throughout the Gospels, particularly in the story, that he has love for people, whether it's rich or poor. And don't miss this in this sermon. 
The rich and the poor that find themselves in love with Jesus have something in, in, um, in common. And that is they both find themselves desperate for Jesus. The haves and the have-nots throwing themselves at the feet of Jesus. And so this man, Jairus, he finds himself and, he, and he's desperate. Particularly this, this, this moment, he's desperate as Luke lets us know because he's got a daughter who's dying. And not just a daughter, his only daughter. And I can imagine... As a father of having your only daughter, any child, right, but your only daughter, that's that sick toward the point of death. Like, I, I don't have a daughter, and yet that makes me feel some type of way. Part, partly because I would love a daughter, right? I really, I've had three dreams over the past probably six months where I've had a daughter. And my boys and I were playing with her, Holly's playing with her, and Holly's, no joke, struggling how to do her hair. And I'm like, let me get that girl. I got me, me. Because if I had a daughter, we were going back to Barrett's. Some of you guys are like, Barrett's? Yeah, Barrett's. And so, so I wake up from these dreams to be sad, right? Because I know if I had a daughter, I would have to look at both of my sons and go, it's been good. <laughs> Move to the side, right? So, so, Jarius, which some people call Jarus, but I think Jarius is probably more of his ethnic name. And so, Jarius, particularly here, he... Come on, guys. Uh, he, he's in a state where he's desperate. And a man that's the ruler of the synagogue is not supposed to be throwing his feet at another man unless he's worshiping him. Unless he believes there's something that this man can do that nobody else can do. It says he implored him. That means literally he begged him, if you can come to my house and heal my daughter. So there's this first picture of the rich man, the man who has a lot who's socially connected, who's known, who has influence, finds himself. And he doesn't say, I'm the ruler of the synagogue, do this so much. He does it on the basis of who Jesus is and what, he's know, what he knows about Jesus and what Jesus can and will and could do. So he throws himself at the feet of Jesus. But then the story takes a turn. And Luke does this purpose, purposefully, because this is one story. Um, continue in verse 42. And as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of her blood ceased. Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. And Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all people why she, was, why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And so now Jesus looks at Jairus and he says, okay, I'll go heal your daughter. And all the people around him, and then they start going towards his house. And as all the people around him is going towards his house, what it says is that there's this woman now. There's another person on the scene. And now how does this... What we know about this woman is she's not rich, she's not influential, she's not a have. She's a total have-not. She doesn't get a name in this particular story. She is a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, and so she has had her menstrual cycle for 12 years and has not been able to stop it. And it says she spent her living, whatever she has, whatever money she had, that she's thrown it at physicians, she's gone to the best of the best. She went to the Mayo Clinic of Jerusalem. 
they couldn't do it. She went to the naturopaths, and they, they couldn't do it. She went to Western medicine, and they couldn't do it. They didn't have Western medicine back then, but she tried it all, right? And it didn't work. And so for 12 years, she's been going through this particular pain. And not just the pain, um, if you read the Leviticus, which I know all of us were like dying to do, in Leviticus chapter 15, it talks about different things about what, are, what makes you ceremonially or, or um, ritually unclean. And that is, one of them is that when you are on your menstrual cycle, you are unclean for at least a day. But if this happens for 12 years, you're unclean for 12 years. And that means unclean, meaning you can't worship in a service like this. You can't show up in the synagogue where this man previous that is on his way to his house to have Jesus fill his house, his daughter, this man, um, she could never come into the synagogue. She couldn't have heard Jesus talk about in the synagogue as he did early in Luke, is that he's come to proclaim good news to the poor, which he's won. That she didn't, she didn't know that because she's not allowed to be around people. That socially, she is on the margin. That she's on the fringe herself. That she has nothing. Now, how did she know that Jesus was even showing up? I have no idea, right? I mean, she probably had an IG account and said, Jesus is here again, right? And so she knew that he was there, and there's a crowd. And during this moment, you see her desperation because she is willing to risk it all, right? She shows up, she sees Jesus, and Jesus is walking with Jairus and tons of people around him. His disciples are there, and somehow she's making her way through the crowd of which she's not supposed to be. And I don't know how she does it, but she reaches out and she grabs the fringe of his garment or the edge of his robe or the hem of his fabric or the thread of his tall tee. Like whatever it is, she, she believes if I can just touch the, the, the hem of his garment, then I will be healed, right? Now, some commentaries look at this and they say this is the superstitious faith, um, that she kind of just like throws it out there. I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I just think it's an imperfect faith. And the reason being why it's imperfect is because every single one of our faith is imperfect. We'll, we'll hear us say sometimes as believers, we'll say we need to increase our faith or we need to have bigger faith or something like that. And the reality of it is it's not so much the amount of our faith, it's the object of our faith. It's not so much how big a faith we have, it's the object. And if the object of our faith is God himself in the flesh in Christ Jesus, it's always going to go well for us. It's always going to go well for us. This woman believes something about Jesus. It is not a perfect faith. But you don't need perfect faith for God to be able to move in your life. You need a perfect God. And it happens to be one who comes to us, who desires to have presence with us in the person of Jesus and now in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so this woman reaches out to Jesus, and from there it gets, I think, a little funny because then, like, she gets healed, and um, I don't know how she knows she was healed, but she's healed. My assumption is she's ready to go about her life because she came to get healed. Let me, let me, let me say this. Many of us, the way we relate to God is we love to relate to God in his power but not his love, and some of us love to relate to him in his love but not his power. Here's what I mean. When we relate to God in his power, we might be able to allow him to get things for us. Like we might be able to say, good, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins and the grace that you give us. Or we thank you for healing me in this particular woman's sake. We want the power of God to move in that way, but not the relationship and the obedience that flows from it. Some of us, we really want his love. We want him to be gracious to us. We want him to be loving towards us. But we want him to be Lord of our lives, to be able to dictate and tell us what to do because he is sovereign king. And yet, when it comes to Jesus, he's not okay with just giving his power without his affection. He's not okay with giving his affection without his power. Because Jesus is not for the transactional relationship. When he, when he relates, it's going to be transformational, meaning something's going to change more than just your morality and your behavior, but even who you are as a person. So Jesus is walking, and then the hymns touch, and he goes, wait a minute, wait, 
Peter's like, what's up? He's like, somebody touched me. And Peter probably rolls his eyes like, Jesus, we know you are the son of God. You know better than this. There are a ton of people. Everybody's touched you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, no, this is a different type of touch because I sense power released from me. And don't think magic power. This ain't, this ain't the Avengers. This is nothing like that, right? This is the power that comes from God through spirit. Like he can sense there is a divine presence of my spirit that has been released from me. Where'd it go? And so he stops like, where is it? And this woman, you can only imagine, she's already done whatever she could to risk it all. Now he's asking for more. He's asking her to come forth publicly, right? She got what she wanted. She healed. And, and, and he goes, wait, no, somebody here, you know who you are, right? And, and there is something about an authority figure when they ask a couple times how somebody, like, will respond. Like, you know, with kids usually, unless you got a really good liar in your hand, you can get a kid, did you do this? No, I didn't do it. Okay, I'm going to ask you again, and I want you to tell me the truth this time. Did you do it? Yeah, I did it. Right? You're like, <laughs> so Jesus is like, who, who did it? And finally, she comes forward, the unclean woman, who, by the way, is not supposed to be in a crowd and definitely not supposed to touch Jesus. Right? Because in some ways, would she now contaminate him? And I love what Josh says, Butler, one of our pastors here. In one of his books, he talks about, you can't make Jesus dirty, but Jesus can make you clean. Like that picture there. So Jesus says, who did it? She goes, I did it. It was me. And then look what she says here, which I, I, I love that, that Luke writes it this way. Verse 47 says this. She came trembling, falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people, here we, why she did it. Not just I did it. Like She's like, so you imagine, she's trembling going, I've been unclean. For 12 years, I spent all my money and everything I had, and I knew that the Lord was here, and I thought if I can just touch just a little bit of his, of his garment, that I would be, I would be healed. That, that's why I did it, and it worked. Like, I'm healed. And then Jesus says this, verse 48, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. When I say this power and love, when he says daughter, one, what he's doing here is what Jesus is doing throughout the gospel of Luke and throughout these stories is he's not just for saving us and just our souls, but restoring us because that's the work that he's in. He's given us a picture of what he's doing in all of human history. That this woman had been socially outcasted, now publicly she's socially included. This, this woman has, was once unclean, that now because of the presence and the touch of Christ, she's made clean, she's made whole. And he's letting everybody know in the same way that he did with the woman who was the woman of the city. is like, this woman is deserving of the community in which we are part of. She's a part of the people of God. And he says, woman, your faith has made you well. Your belief in what God can do has made you well. That word well is where we get the word saved from. That saving is not just this vertical relationship between us and God. It's nothing less than that, but it's far more. That God is for not just the transactional, I forgive your sin, you pray a prayer. It's for transformational. You follow me unto my life, unto the kingdom of God, and which he's going to fully restore. And so this woman is now restored because of her, her faith. And it's this beautiful picture. Now, I don't know what she did afterwards. I mean, you can only imagine, like, if you've been outside of the community for 12 years, that chances are if she were married, she'd have been divorced. Or she at least has not been able to be around a whole lot of people. My assumption is once she knew she was healed, at some level she probably was like, if you got the interview or when you got to heaven, so what did you do after that happened? Well, let me tell you what I did. I went and got my hair, hair did. I got my nails did. You know what I'm saying? Stella got her groove back. And so she was, she was probably ready to join back the community. Meanwhile, Jarius is still there. Like, Jarius is still in the story. And he's probably like, okay, 
That's amazing. I'm glad that happened. Jesus, can we now get to, get to my baby girl? And um, because she's dying, and I'm glad that you were able to allow this woman to interrupt you, but can we get to my baby girl? And then verse 48 lets us know something. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not, trouble, do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter in with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So, so Jesus, because he's okay with being interrupted, actually is two-way in this particular situation, right? Because when you, allow the, when you love in the way like Christ, it's not efficient. The most efficient thing would have said, um, you got healed, you're good, okay, cool, someone take care of that, I got, but that's just the way love is. Sometimes it's wildly inefficient. <laughs> and he shows up, before he shows up, the word is already there, hey, don't, to Jairus, don't bother the teacher, she's dead. And Jesus was like, no, 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 don't worry about it. Don't, don't, don't let fear dictate your life, replace it with faith. She will be well, that's a promise. Now in this particular, Jesus is promising us, all's gonna go well, just, just believe. And so they get to the house, and there's the mourners that are there, those who are weeping. And what we probably think is that these are professional weepers. So if you're, if you're with us for the first week of this series, we talked about how the widow who Jesus raised um, her son to life, how they're in funerals, they would have professional weepers, people who would, who would cry for a living out loud. And I think these are probably hired weepers, not just a family. And the reason being is they're weeping, and then when Jesus says that she's not dead, she's sleeping, they start laughing. Most people don't start laughing when someone's dead, right? And so Jesus kind of looks at them with, you know, that sideways look like, oh, child, please. And then says, okay, none of you guys are going to see this. He takes James, Peter, and John with him. And then the child's parents goes in, and then he raises her from the dead and gives her back to his father. Now, he does it not just for the daughter because he had said another story. He does it because he loves the father, that he wants his father to have his daughter and for her to be well. That when you see this, Jesus was totally okay in love to be interrupted by Jairus and to be interrupted by the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. But when you turn it around, these people are totally okay with risking it all by being desperate for wanting to be at the feet of Jesus. That the man who's, who's, who's leading the synagogue that, that ultimately has this, this, this presence in the community throws himself weeping at the foot of Jesus because he desperately wants Jesus to show up in his life. But there's a desperation there. Yes, he has a lot of things, but he doesn't have Jesus. This woman, that she finds herself going, I'm willing to risk it all, being in community, being social, touching Jesus, potentially making him contaminated, but I trust that his holiness somehow can make me pure. And so she risks it all, that there's a desperation that happens there. And you see the parallel that I think Luke does intentionally on this story. That you both have women. You have one woman who's only been alive for 12 years and is dying. Another woman for the past 12 years has been essentially dead. That you see both have this sense of unclean. That Jesus, if he touches the dead child, he's unclean. And if Jesus touches the woman or the woman touches Jesus, they're unclean. But yet, what Josh says, Jesus can't become dirty. But he can make those who are dirty who come to him clean. 
that what we see in both these situations is that both are desperate situations. So here, here, here's what I would say for us as it looks at love on display. We have to be willing to interrupt Jesus because there's really no such thing as interrupting Jesus. That we have to find ourselves in position to be desperate enough to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus again and again and again. Because here's what I know. It would be like us to lose desperation because of all the stuff that God has given us or because of all of the things in which we have in our life. That it would be like us to not have the desperation of Jesus and thus miss out on the things of the Lord. There's no promise that he's going to raise our, our child's lives. There's no promise that, that our sicknesses are always going to get healed in this life. There, there's no promises of that. The Bible's very clear about that. But there is a promise of him. There is a promise of the presence of Jesus. The love being put on display is not just something that we can see, but something that we can enter into by faith, that we should desperately desire. I, I remember a friend sitting across the table from me, and he, and he said, how much of God do you have? And I thought, that's a, what is that one? It's one of those trick questions. <laughs> oh, how much of God do you have? And he goes, I know. And I said, what? He goes, as much as you want. And I thought, huh. And he goes, the question is, how much do you want him? Hear me, hear me. And this is a sad, and this is not a message for you, this is a message for me, it's a message for us all. Those of us in this room who have been followers of Jesus, if we're honest with ourselves, we can probably go back to times in our, in our walk with the Lord, seasons where we can go, yeah, I was close to the Father. I was close to him. And then we can, for whatever circumstances, whether it be stage of life, whether it be, right, let's just be real. Like, there's some things I wanted from God that I didn't get. I wanted a spouse. That hasn't happened yet. And you know what? It kind of sucks. Sorry to use that word sometimes. Um, I wanted um, this particular job. I wanted these people alive, and they're not. These things have happened, and, and it just seems like I've become different. I used to be a part of this campus ministry, and I was so, quote, unquote, on fire for the Lord, but now I don't have those same friends in those circumstances. Whatever it may be, we find ourselves drifting further away from the fire, further away from the feet, further away from that mode of desperation. And some of us, if we're just honest, we don't need God. Like, everything else we can kind of do on our own. And we don't need prayer, and we don't need these things. We would never say that out loud because that just would be the Christian thing to do. But if you actually look at the calendars of our day, if you were to track, like people do with their watches, their heart, if you, if you track your spiritual heart, how many steps do you have? Like, 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 like when, it comes, when it comes to the life in which finds itself, herself, himself, a people of God, desperate for God, you don't need to be poor for those things to happen. You could be rich and still throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. So, so this upcoming Wednesday, it, it marks the beginning of the church calendar of Lent. It's Ash Wednesday. And some of us who don't have any uh, background of that can kind of get weirded out. Like, is that workspace and whatever? No, it's an opportunity for the church throughout history to be able to carve out things and say, we're going to fast and we're going to pray. We're going to remove certain things from our life, not because they're bad, but because we need more of Jesus. It's the age-old picture of the way you go to the grocery store when you're, when you're full. When you're completely full and you go to the grocery store, you may not even get what you need. Flip side of that, you show up to the grocery store hungry, all of a sudden you have every flavor that Captain Crunch has ever made, right? And, it, and how did I get all this? Because you, you, you didn't know. When you find yourself being full of the things of this world, you may not actually access the very presence and power of Jesus in the way that we need him, right? And I don't, I think, honestly, it's a church like ours that's most susceptible to that. Because there are certain things that are in place. The Lord has blessed us so much um, that we have to intentionally remove certain things that we may be like the woman and throw our feet ourselves at the feet of Jesus or be like Jairus and say, God, show up in only a way that you can show up. 
And that desperation shows itself in fasting and it shows itself in prayer. So as we enter into this season, I highly recommend that you get resources that we provide or online or somewhere to go, Lord, what does it look like for us to fast and pray? Pray that our, our holy desperation of you would increase that we may find ourselves feasting and tasting and seeing how good it is to sit at the feet of Jesus. Amen? God, we, uh, we thank you that your love is an invitation for us to intrude and to say we're showing up at any moment to be with you. And that you will pause anything that is happening to make time for your children in whom you love. That that invitation is there and provided, Lord, through the blood and the death and the resurrection, the ascension and the sending of the spirit of Jesus. That we have of you as much as we want that we could follow you, that we could be in Christ, that those are those beautiful pictures. And Lord, we pray that deep in that relationship and deep in that fellowship with others. And so Lord, that we would find ourselves, Lord, asking you that you would heal us. And many of us, none of us have 12 years of bleeding, but oftentimes have been many years, Lord, of just being distant of you and going through the religious motions. May we have relational affections in you, Christ, that would draw us deeper to you. Distract us from the things of this world, the things that cripple us, Lord, the money that we think we need, Lord, the things in which we try to control, the ways in which we're trying to have a handle on our life. Help us to be wildly inefficient in the ways of this world that we may absolutely be satisfied in the ways of Jesus. God, help us to taste and see that you're good. Help us to see that it is a faith in you, Lord, that makes us well and that you desire to make us well afresh. Collectively and corporately and as a community, Jesus, help us to follow you. God, we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.